Hi, and welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this episode is general in nature, does not take into consideration your personal situation, circumstances, or needs. So Shani is back from COVID. Mm-hmm. You're back in the Investing Compass studio. I am. I'm in the office. Yeah. I'm outside. It's very strange. Yeah. The Investing Compass studio, by the way, is a conference room. <laughs> studio <laughs> makes it sound very fancy. It's the two of us and Will in here, but I'm happy to have you back. Thanks, mate. Shani spent the entire day talking about how she's looking for jobs and going and going through her criteria on jobs, which basically is around office location and not working with me. <laughs> so it's been productive. But all right, we'll get we'll get started with the episode, Shani, mm-hmm. because there's really nothing you can do to respond to that. Yeah. So we're going to take a little bit of a different approach today. And, you know, I'll admit that this was my idea. So any complaints you can direct towards me. So we did an episode at the end of last year where we looked at the state of the market and it got me thinking, and I understand that this is a little bit strange, but got me thinking about, you know, those war games that are played by militaries, right, to go through different scenarios and governments do it like with disaster response. And we're going to do that with the market today. I I wish I still had COVID. I could just be at home and pull out the microphone. <laughs> yeah. Well, let you continue on with this. Yeah. Well, you are you've recovered. You're here. You've not found your new job yet. So <laughs> we're gonna uh we're gonna have to do this. But uh but it anyway. was all hypothetical. Can I just say that? I was just saying if I had to look for a job, we do have a new person on our team. So we're talking to her yeah. about she was based in North Sydney before this and we said we both would not work in North Sydney. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. Shani also spent the whole time telling the new person on our team how terrible I was. So <laughs> yeah, it was good. All right. So we're gonna go through the scenario. Shani, are you are you ready for this? So mm. and I and I know you don't necessarily agree, but this is gonna be helpful because this is gonna allow people to visualize a scenario where the market falls significantly and then imagine what they're going to do about it. And so this is not a prediction. So that's very important and certainly not a hope of either one of ours. And, you know, I was thinking also about, you know, the War of the Worlds broadcast. No. Never heard that story. So you know the book though, right? I've heard of the book. Okay. Well, the book's about aliens invading. Okay. And, you know, I think this was back in the 1920s. They read it over the airwaves so on radio in New Jersey. And people that didn't listen to the beginning when they're like, we're reading War of the Worlds thought that aliens had actually invaded and this was a news <laughs> report. So nobody should think about that today. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not really sure what to say about this episode so far. I mean, I went out last night. We practiced this episode yesterday and I went out last night um, and I came back to the whole podcast being completely changed and I'm just going to wing this. Let's see how we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So, all right. Where we're going to start is we're going to start where we are now, right? So we're going to look at the market now, and then we're going to talk about how that could potentially move into a bear market. And that's the whole purpose of this episode. Well, on the surface, everything seems fine. On January 17th, if we look at the Morningstar Global Market Index, it was up 2.21% over the past three months. And the Morningstar US Index was up 3.16%. And Morningstar Australia Index is up 1.88%. Yeah. So as you said, like everything seems fine. Those are all reasonable and pretty boring returns over a three-month period. But then if we dive a little bit deeper, we can see that there are some shifts going on. So 
Why don't we start by looking at two different factors for dividing up shares, which are market capitalization or how big a company is, which is divided into large cap, mid cap, and small cap, and then style, which differentiates between value, growth, and core. So if we kind of think of this as a three by three matrix where we can look at performance between large cap value growth core, mid cap value growth core, small cap value growth core, you, you, get, the, you get the point, hopefully. And this is actually where things get a little bit interesting as growth shares have done very poorly while value shares have done very well. And before getting into the specifics, Johnny, do you want to provide a little bit of a summary of the difference? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as Mark said earlier, we divide the universe of shares between growth, core and value. And the basis for this classification is valuation measures such as price to value, price to cash flow, price to book value. And while there's no measure of earnings growth in these rankings, investors will always pay more for faster growth since when we buy a share, we're buying it for the future. So growth shares have a higher valuation because they're expected to grow faster. Yeah. So we're going to look at three-month data. And I will say that we're recording this on January 20th. The data is through January 17th, but the market has gone very negative since then. Mm -hmm. So all of these things are actually more pronounced. So when we look at three-month data from the US within that matrix that we talked about, we see that all three categories of growth have underperformed value by significant margins. That underperformance has been more pronounced and more negative for growth as we move from larger companies to smaller companies. So when we look at large cap US growth, so big companies that are growth companies, over the last three months, we can see that they're down 8%, while large cap US value has been up 7.82%. In mid cap or medium sized companies, we had growth down 11%, over 11%, and value up 6%. And in small cap or small companies, we have growth down over 13.5% and value up 4.73%. So the question, of course, is what does this mean, Shani? Well, the first thing to note is that there is uh, this is for three months and that's nothing. Uh, so making investment decisions after three months is kind of like deciding to get married five minutes into a first date. Every once in a while, we hear about it working out, but that is generally dumb luck. That being said, we can interpret this as investors getting a little bit spooked about risk. In general, small companies are riskier than large companies as they generally are less established, which means less diversified product line, shakier finances, and a less proven business model. Yeah, and we haven't seen this in Australia. And it is important, though, to remember that Australia is a very different market that doesn't have the depth or the diversity in industries that the U.S. has. However, we've also seen signs of rethinking risky shares locally. So no example is better than buy now, pay later companies. So for people who listen to our late March episode on buy now, pay later, talked about Afterpay and Zip and, Zip and talked about how expensive they were and how we thought that both companies didn't have moats or sustainable competitive advantages and that new entrants to the market and traditional players like banks would erode their market share and profit margins. Well, guess what? Since that episode, which we published on the 28th of March, Afterpay is down close to 32% and Zip is down more than 50%. Is this a bit of a I told you so moment for you, Mark? I mean, it's it's not because, you know, <laughs> at the end of the day, like the really long-term shareholders mm -hmm. have still done very well yeah. in both names. But what it is, is, you know, saying that valuation levels, the valuation levels that both were trading at when we put out that episode, were at a level where they weren't even priced to perfection. They were priced beyond perfection. And that has consequences for investors. 
And I think this is an important thing that we should all be thinking about. The higher the valuation level that a share is trading for, the riskier that investment is. And I don't think that's something that's really that appreciated. Yeah, no, I don't either. So why don't we why don't we repeat that and we'll spend a minute going through it. So if you buy a share that's trading for 20 times earnings versus a share that's trading for 10 times earnings, it is riskier. The higher valuation is riskier because with that difference in valuation level, there's all sorts of embedded expectations baked in by investors. Expectations on how the company performs, expectations on the overall economic environment, expectations on the level of interest rates, and expectations on the level of inflation. That is what price to perfection means. And Shani, this makes me actually think of a conversation we had a couple of days ago, and we were talking about goals. Do you want to let people in on this uh, on this story? Why, why don't you tell that story, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you're you're losing the ability to to crack Control the message. It, yeah. Exactly. Well, <laughs> okay. so obviously, Shani and I work together, and we're having discussion about our team goals for this year. And I asked Shani to send through the goals that she's responsible for, and she she sent them through. And I looked at them, and I thought, I don't know, these aren't really ambitious enough. And I said that to you. And what did you say to me? I said I said that um, I like to underpromise and overdeliver. Exactly, right? So that's a great analogy for a share trading at a high valuation and a low valuation. In a work environment, under-promising is less risky. The hurdles are lower and the chances of exceeding expectations are higher when you under-promise. You have more upside. Same thing with a share at a lower valuation level. They are less risky. And it's impossible to know why we've seen this sell-off in growth shares and strong performance in value shares, because this is based on the decisions of millions of individual actors with their own goals and their own reasons. But it isn't unreasonable to speculate that a lot of people are looking at the world right now and thinking that they don't want to be in shares that are priced for perfection, because what is happening does not seem like perfection. Yeah, no, it it certainly doesn't, right? We've Mm -hmm. got inflation. We have interest rates that have been raised or are going to be raised. We've had big-time drop-offs in fiscal and monetary stimulus, and we've had continued economic disruption from a pandemic that just won't end, and that is not perfection. Yeah, so perhaps um, this is the time to talk about the implications of a longer-term continuation of this rotation from growth to value and why in this exercise today we're using it as a trigger for a market drop. A bit of history is that this hasn't happened since the GFC, We've seen growth outperform significantly since that time. So, Mark, what are the implications of a change? Yeah, so this is where we need to turn to the data to see where we are. So, as we said, as we said many times on here, indexes are market cap weighted, which mean that most of them are, which mean that the larger the company, the more of an index it makes up. So, when we look at the S and P 500 at the end of 2021, we can see that 34% of the index is in growth and 27% in value, with the remainder in blend or core. If we look at an equal weighted index on the S&P 500, where all 500 shares get an equal amount of money, we see that 18% is growth and 40% is value, with the remainder, of course, in blend or core. So what this means is that a rotation from growth to value will mean poor performance for the market cap weighted index, and that is the one that most people invest in and the one that, of course, gets reported. It also means that we would have better performance in an equal weighted index, but of course that has less of an impact on investors' finances or just overall market sentiment. So why does this matter? Well, when we say the market is performing poorly, we're talking about an index that is disproportionately impacted by the largest shares. And in that case, that means growth shares. 
The biggest seven holdings of the S&P 500 at the end of last year, which made up over 25% of the index, were Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Tesla, Google, Facebook, and NVIDIA. The top seven holdings in the S&P 500 growth index are Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Tesla, Google, Facebook, and NVIDIA. Yeah. And so that's the exact same list. Mm -hmm. So over a quarter of the S&P 500's value is in these large growth shares. The largest holding in the S&P 500 value index is Berkshire Hathaway, which is the eighth largest company in the overall index and clocks in at 1.49% of the total. And this means that theoretically, we could have a pretty large fall in the S&P 500 index with most companies in the index gaining in value. This also seems like semantics, but a continued and accelerated rotation from growth could result in a pretty significant fall in the index that could induce passive investors to sell. And if they start getting spooked and heading to the exits, then we're all in trouble. Yeah. And these are passive investors that don't believe they are making a bet in any one direction since they are investing passively. But in reality, they are betting on large growth shares continuing their run. Given the amount of time since the last rotation to value, a rotation now is the potential to be really destabilizing to the market. The same thing happened as the dot-com bubble burst as a rotation to value in 2000 had a really detrimental impact on the overall market. That rotation, of course, was triggered by a Federal Reserve interest rate rise in March of 2000. And, you know, not just in this episode, but in others as well, you keep talking about the year 2000 when we're thinking about now. Do you really think that this is the same market? Yeah. I, I mean, listen, I'm trying to go out there and find things that challenge my thinking on this because I, I know that I'm getting caught in a little bit of a bad place here and I'm exhibiting confirmation bias. And that's, of course, where you seek out information that confirms your opinion or you interpret data in such a way that confirms your opinion. But I will say I just see a lot of similarities. And I think we can't ignore the fact that small cap growth shares are down close to 14% in the last three months. That is a correction as they fall in more than 10%. 6% more, and it's a bear market for small cap growth. Nobody's really going to care about that except investors in those particular securities. But the question is, will it spread? But one person that cares is Kathy Wood, who runs ARK Innovation ETF. She is, of course, uh, known for investing in growth companies. Her flagship ETF has underperformed the tech-heavy NASDAQ 100 by 65% in the last 12 months. And that's coming off really strong performance and huge inflows into her ETF, but it's a shockingly bad year. And the fact that it came off of huge inflows into our ETF is an indication that those new investors have lost a significant amount of money. Right. Don't chase returns. Exactly. And Kathy Wood likes these moonshot companies that are just going for it and trying to change the world with new technologies. And the Wall Street Journal had a really interesting article the other day looking at these speculative tech companies and biotech companies that have not turned a profit yet, but have been darlings of the market. And in a nutshell, those are small cap growth companies. Yeah, exactly. So. This analysis compared companies that are not profitable with those that are profitable in the NASDAQ Composite Index. The average fall of the loss-making companies was 28% since September 30th, and the average fall for profitable companies in the same time frame was 0.7%. So this is yet another illustration of what we're talking about before. The more speculative investments are getting hit hard. So the question is, when does this short-term trend become something that we need to pay attention to? And also, what should we do as investors in response? I think we need to pay attention when this starts spreading to other parts of the market. There are boom and bust cycles going on all the time in more speculative parts of the market. And to me, I would consider ARC innovation to be speculative. But once again, that's me and my investment approach. 
Kathy Woods is, of course, a lot smarter than I am. We could say that she's playing chess and I'm playing checkers. <laughs> I do think she's a bit smarter than you. I, I'm not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe can go get a job with her. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not trying to accomplish the same thing as her. She is a professional investor trying to generate above average returns and beat her index. I'm trying to generate a 6.3% annual return so I can have a retirement that involves some nice wine and a couple nice trips. And maybe a winery in there. And maybe a winery, exactly. Mm -hmm. I didn't say that the nice wine wouldn't be mine. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, most investors, I would say, are probably closer to my camp and look at what's happening with these more speculative parts of the market and probably think, who cares? And, you know, maybe they're even sitting there thinking that these investors deserve what's happening. And well, that certainly isn't a great attitude and doesn't show a lot of empathy. We do need to be cognizant, all of us, that in investing, things can spread. They mostly don't, but when they do, we are all in trouble. And that was a point Mark was trying to make about why we should pay attention when things spread from the more speculative parts of the market to other parts of the market. Let's go back to the dot-com crash to see how this can happen. The Nasdaq hit its high in March of 2000, a level it wouldn't reach again for 15 years. The S&P 500 lagged and hit its high in August of 2000, and then the rat was on and it fell 49% and took five years before recovering. And in August, the Nasdaq, while volatile, was only down 7% before the fall in both indexes accelerated. So in this case, a fall in a very speculative part of the market spread to the rest of the market. And we don't know how or if this will happen, but if it does, I suspect that it will involve passive investments, which is why I'm so focused on indexes. And I keep saying passive investments because we've had this huge upswing in passive investing since the GFC. 50% of U.S. publicly traded shares are held by passive funds and ETFs. And we've never really dealt with an actual bear market with anything close to that. So we do need to be cognizant of how this will impact the rest of us. So how does this start? We've gone through what is happening to the more speculative parts of the market growth shares in general, but especially small cap US growth, and in particular companies that aren't profitable. We've talked about the prevalence of growth shares in indexes, and we've talked about how passive investors are dominating the market. So what's next, Mark? Okay. So in our market doomsday scenario, the next thing that happens is that this spreads into the mid and large cap tech space. And then of course, we just see accelerated losses. So this is where we keep an eye on funds and ETFs that track the NASDAQ 100, so that represents the 100 largest tech companies that trade on the NASDAQ. So if we look at that index, Apple is 11.64% of it, Microsoft is 10.2% of it, and then literally it's those usual suspects that Shani went through earlier. So given the run that large cap growth has had, these tech shares, in particular the NASDAQ 100 top holdings, look a lot like the top holdings of the S&P 500, but just in larger percentages. So the performance of passive investments that track this index, like NDQ, that ETF in Australia, the triple Q in the US, will be an indication if this spreads. Because if we start to have passive investors start to sell with the NASDAQ 100, we'll see those losses spread to the S&P 500, and then all the passive money tracking that is going to get impacted. And it's important to talk a bit about the psychology of the market here and go back to Ben Graham's Mr. Market. He personified the market because he wanted to make the point that our collective mood and outlook matters and can cause large swings in the market. So Mark is talking about the pessimism spreading from small cap growth shares to large cap growth shares to the broader market, because as losses occur, people become more pessimistic about the future. 
And that may be irrational, but it's also human psychology. Yeah, and I don't want to be glib about this, but we've all spent the past couple years thinking about how things spread and worrying about numbers like the reproductive rate of COVID. And a market fall will work in the same way. More people will get infected with fear, and their fear will infect more people. So investors get spooked by losses, but all of us have different levels of losses that will cause us to lose hope. There are people that will go out early with relatively minimum falls. And those people selling will cause more losses, which will spook the next group of people, and that will continue until enough people capitulate and we are in a deep bear market. And the thing we can't simulate here is how this will feel as an investor. The first drop will see all the naysayers who aren't investors come out of the woodwork. Your friends and colleagues who always thought investing was too risky will be the first ones to tell you that they knew investing was a mistake, that it is too risky and you should have just kept your money in the bank. And those people will be pretty easy to ignore. But the next drop will start to be fellow investors. So perhaps this will be some newer investors who don't have as much confidence, who took the plunge because everyone else was doing it, and still they weren't too sure about it. They will start selling and will justify it by saying that maybe investing wasn't right for them. This is when the traditional media will start to get involved, and you'll read quotes about how they've stopped investing because the quote-unquote system is rigged. And the media will start to ask about what the impact is of all these new investors fleeing the market. And you'll also start to see this on social media. Some of the Finfluencers will start to go silent. They will put up a bit of a fight and you'll hear things about buying the dip and focus on the long term. But let's be serious here. Updating your net worth once a month and posting it on your Instagram page isn't fun when it keeps going down. And this will not be the market just going down. There will be some rallies that will give everyone hope, but the rallies will never reach the previous heights and will fizzle out one after another. And soon you will start hearing from your friends and colleagues that you trust. They will say things that sound perfectly rational, things that sound like common sense, like the market is just a bit risky right now, so it makes sense to go to cash and I will start investing when the market is safer. Right, and who can argue with that? It seems so simple. Just sell into the fall and surely you'll know when to buy again. And the reason this will sound so good to you is because it'll stop the pain, the pain of looking at your account balance falling every single time you check it. And you won't think about all the gains you've had in the past. You'll just fixate on a number that your account used to have X amount of dollars in it. And you won't be able to get that number out of your mind as your account gets further and further away from it. And perhaps you're the one investing for your family and your husband or wife will start coming to you and asking some innocent questions. They'll mean well. And, you know, they're just curious. They will say they saw something on the news about the market falling and wanted to see if everything was okay. And you'll start to worry that they'll think less of you if you admit your account balances are falling, that it'll seem like you don't know what you're doing, that you failed your family. And you know that you can give them that same line about selling now when things are really risky in order to get back in later. And that'll stop the guilt, even though you know as the market falls, it in fact is getting less risky even though you know it's unlikely you'll know when to get back in. So this will spread from person to person, and it will be so easy to sell. You don't have to talk to anyone. You don't have to justify your decision. You just have to press a button on your phone. And you own an index fund, so there's no company to study or business results to contrast with what's happening with the share price. It's just a faceless ETF, which will feel really disconnected from the underlying thing you own, a real business. A business that is providing a good or service that is being bought by people every day. Because things will seem dire in your head, like the economy is collapsing because the stock market is going down, but in reality it isn't. People are still out there going to work and buying from companies. 
but you will press that button because more and more of your world and your headspace is just that ETF going down in price. And when you sell that $10,000 S&P 500 ETF, it means that 2,500 of that will be selling those top names in the index, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Tesla, Google, Facebook, and NVIDIA. And that act will make the index fall even more because most of the passive money coming out will be concentrated in these shares that make up a disproportionate portion of the index. It was momentum originally that made that index go up. And it's also momentum that is going to drag that index down. So the momentum on the upside is what made passive investing so great since the GFC and concentrated so much of these large indexes around the world in just a couple companies, in a couple sectors, and in growth investing. That concentration is going to do the same thing on the downside. And if this sounds scary, then that's good because it will feel, feel scary, but visualizing it will make sure you don't push that button. And hopefully you won't push it because you know that a lower market means a high future expected return that a lower valuation level is in fact less risky. You will think about your goal and what is going, what it's going to take to get there. When something has you spooked, an article, a conversation with a friend, or simply looking at your account, what you're going to do is recalculate your required rate of return. And it will be higher because the market has fallen. And because you listen to this podcast, you will know that a higher required rate of return means you need to be invested in growth assets like shares. So you're going to stick with your plan. And everyone's plan is unique, but my plan is to continue to invest with each paycheck regardless of market levels and focus on how much I can get into the market. Mark's plan is to look for opportunities to get his cash invested, and both plans are long-term ones. Well, this is our episode for today. So we painted a scenario here that I think is plausible, but of course, we just made it up. So the reality is that nobody knows what will happen. What I do know is that I've lived through multiple bear markets since I started investing, and then I will live through many more. But I don't know how they will happen, what will trigger them, and when they will occur. There have been 26 bear markets since 1929, so they've happened once every 3.5 years. What I do know about the next bear market is that it will be scary and people will act irrationally. And those irrational actions will seem like the smart thing to do at the time. So we hope this episode will help you make better decisions when that happens. We are, as I said, recording this on January 20th. The headline in the Morningstar Morning Note today said the NASDAQ 100 has entered a correction. So it has fallen more than 10%. So I do think it's an appropriate day to do this episode. But anyway, thank you very much. We appreciate it. We would love questions, comments. We would love referrals. And of course, if anyone has any questions or complaints about the episode or wants to wish Shani um, well, you've already recovered. So wants to celebrate <laughs> Shani's COVID now. recovery, please send an email address that's in the show notes. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.